From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colleges and universities in Colorado are working to keep COVID-19 at bay by keeping students out of the classroom. We'll talk to CU Boulder about the shift to online learning and hear from a student with lots of questions. Plus, an update on the governor's emergency powers to respond to the virus. We are likely on the verge of a tipping point where we will see more community spread in the days and weeks ahead. Then, teens under stress. The pressure goes beyond social media, school, and trying to fit in. Existential anxiety over situations like climate change can be overwhelming. Is this really going to matter, like, in, like, 10 years? And, like, what I'm doing now, will it matter? Because the world's gone to trash. We talk with a group of teens about finding hope when it feels hopeless. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Colorado colleges and universities are now on the front line to slow down the spread of COVID-19. The University of Colorado at Boulder, Colorado State University in Fort Collins, and the School of Mines in Golden lead the growing list of colleges that are shifting to online classes for students, some for the remainder of the semester. CU Boulder is the first to make the change starting Monday, but even though classes will be online, campus facilities like libraries, residences, and dining halls are still open. What does this mean for students? Let's hear from Dan Jones. He's the Associate Vice Chancellor for Integrity, Safety, and Compliance at CU. Hi, Dan. Good morning. Lucy Haggard is a senior studying human geography and journalism. Hey, Lucy. Hi, how's it going? So, Lucy, I want to know your questions for Dan, but first let's break this down a little. Campus is still considered open, but there aren't in-person classes. Dan, is this mandatory? Um, We've asked faculty to start to work towards transitioning Uh, to remote learning, uh, and that is something we're shooting to have in place on Monday. People also gather in dorms, dining halls, rec centers. Why not shut down the campus and its facilities completely? I think it's important to remember that for many of our students, the, the residence halls are their home. And we have many students who, in fact, won't be able to just go home. So the the university really has an obligation to continue to provide uh, services, including mental health and medical support, and as well as um, you know things like advising and, and mentoring. And for students who do have another option of a place to be that's easy, are you encouraging them to go home, say, to a parent's house? Students are free to make the decision for themselves in terms of where they think it's best for them. Uh, You know, we do believe that we're taking many steps to make sure that students are safe in the residence halls, and and that includes additional cleaning, additional awareness communication uh, within the, the residence halls. And what about events on campus? Are those still happening? No, the events on campus, uh, the chancellor's announcement yesterday said that we are uh, presuming to cancel events that are multi-day or larger than uh, 150 uh, individuals. And then units where they feel that there's some reason to have this event to make sure that we can continue to operate the campus during this period, uh, there's an exception process that uh, will come to me and then the, the chancellor. Now, Lucy, you're set to graduate in May. How much will this change your daily routine? 
Well, Avery, I unexpectedly had my last main day on campus yesterday, actually. Um, A couple of my profs are going online a little early, um, and so as I was walking home from class, I thought uh, I would go by Fair and Field, and if you're familiar with the Boulder campus, you know how beautiful that scenery is. It looks right at the Flatirons, and I just had to take a picture because um, it was a little bittersweet. Uh, I understand the decision, um, but I'm interested in understanding more about it, uh, and I I think it will be not what I expected. (laughs) So you've already had your last in-person class of your college career then? Yes. Okay, I know that you have a lot of questions for Dan, so let's have you take it away. Um, So Dan, I guess I was wondering a little bit about the decision process to take uh, classes online but keep campus open versus closing campus entirely. You know, it 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 goes back to you know, the recognition that, you know, two things. One, you know, we will continue to have to ha- maintain some level of operations um, because we will s- continue to have students who have to be on campus and we'll need to make sure we support those individuals. It's also important to recognize that, you know, in Boulder County today, we still do not have community spread. The campus felt that as we were working through our plans, um, that we had gotten to the point where we could make these steps and to make sure that we were taking a you know proactive measures to get ahead of uh, you know, the you know expected spread of of the virus and make sure that you know our goal is to be able to reduce the impact of, uh, you know, on medical services within the county and the campus if we can take these proactive measures. So I guess that leads me to something that you were kind of talking about earlier, but uh, I'm wondering, especially for classes that have to be uh, in person, whether it's like a ceramics class or an anatomy class or something like that, um, how are you going to compensate for experience for students? Are there going to be potential makeup sessions or even are you considering refunds? You know, I think many of those questions are the types of things that we're still working through, uh, which is why we made the announcement yesterday to give faculty additional time to work through some of those questions and figure out what's the, you know, is there a creative way that they can continue to still provide, you know, substantive and, and meaningful uh, ac- educational experiences for the students, and and meet the um, educational um, you know goals for that particular course. Those are things. Those are decisions that we're still working through, though. Okay, and you were mentioning this a little bit earlier, but I guess I'm concerned, especially about the well-being of students. I mean, this is a really stressful time for us already on top of midterms and the presidential primary and the census, and it's just a very big year. Um, Are there still going to be resources available at Wardenburg or other health centers and especially uh, mental health centers? Uh, Or are you considering like doing online counseling or phone counseling or things like that to accommodate? Um, Yes. And, um, you know, those core services uh, are exactly why we're continuing to keep the campus open. And Dan, this is Avery jumping back in. Is there a chance that CU decides to change the decision and go back to regular classes before the end of the semester? You know, I I really would hesitate to try to make any uh, guesses about that uh, right now. Uh, you know, 
as you all know, the situation is changing um, daily and we're new, learning new information. And so we'll continue to monitor that and then make uh, decisions based on you know, what kind of advice we're getting from the uh, medical community and, and uh, county health departments. Uh, but that's, we'll, we'll need to continue to evaluate and, and make those decisions. Dan Jones is Associate Vice Chancellor for Integrity, Safety, and Compliance at CU Boulder, and Lucy Haggard is a student at the university. For a complete list of college and universities that are shifting to online courses because of coronavirus, go to CPR.org. Governor Jared Polis has declared a state of emergency on Tuesday as Colorado responds to the spread of coronavirus. Now he's declared an emergency. Polis has sweeping powers to deal with what the World Health Organization calls a global pandemic. CPR's Ben Marcus joins us to talk about what the governor has ordered. Hi, Ben. Hey, how are you doing? Doing well. Tell me about how Governor Polis is using his powers in an emergency. So he's issued several orders. Uh, first, um, he has state agencies working on finding paid sick leave for workers in specific industries. So food handling, hospitality, child care. This is where you would interact with other vulnerable populations. Uh, he's looking to get paid sick leave for state workers, too, and also finding ways for them to work from home, as is happening in a lot of private industries. Um, he wants more testing. So he's opened a lab in East Denver. He wants to open another lab in the mountains. Um, and then this was interesting, too. Anyone who's 65 and over can renew their driver's license online. Uh, this follows somebody who was infected with coronavirus who went to into a DMV in Douglas County. Um, and so he wants to be extra cautious that, um, you know, n- instead of having to come to the DMV as they would normally in person, they can just do that online. So these are orders the state's already been working on, and the governor expanded on those orders yesterday. That's right. So yesterday he ordered schools, if there's a worker or student who tests positive, to close for 72 hours for a very thorough cleaning. Uh, The other important specific role he talked about was for nursing home facilities or any facility that deals with older populations, limiting visits, creating rules to limit visits from outsiders, uh, but also to screen employees for, for possible illness. And this is actually similar to what Washington State enacted? That's right. So there was a nursing home in the Seattle area where there was a rash of deaths due to coronavirus. And so Washington State has very strict rules now in place for nursing facilities. And so Colorado's kind of moving towards that. Now, Governor Polis has been particularly concerned about older populations, right? Yeah, so a number of his warnings have dealt specifically with older populations, but he's also in his rhetoric been saying, be careful. Uh, The evidence shows that older populations are the most vulnerable to coronavirus, the the worst effects of coronavirus. Um, And he mentioned that in context of mountain resorts yesterday. And so he's particularly concerned about older populations in the mountain resorts, which look like hotspots, according to the data that they have right now. And so he was very clear um, telling older populations, do not go out in large public events if you can avoid it. And Governor Polis also had a lot about a lot to say about prisons yesterday, right? Yeah. So his Department of Corrections has instituted a ban on inmate visitation, um, which is interesting. They're going to uh, maybe expand video visits. Uh, so to still get contact, you may be able to do a video chat type situation. They're also going to expand the amount of time that they allow inmates to be on the phone. Um, the other thing that jumped off the page to me was that uh, because of the alcohol content in hand sanitizer, They don't allow it in prisons, though they said they have plenty of soap and water. 
Now, I gather what the government, what the governor has enacted so far is unprecedented, at least in recent memory. Yeah. So I was talking to former Governor Bill Ritter. Uh, he was governor before John Hickenlooper. Uh, and I was just reading him what was in some of these orders that Polis is issuing. Uh, and he was just like, wow, <laughs> I never had to do anything like that uh, when I was governor. He declared disasters, um, state of emergencies for hurricanes, or not hurricanes, tornadoes. There's no hurricanes here. Um, <laughs> Uh, the Four Mile Canyon fire up in Boulder County. Um, but he was saying that he could not remember, he didn't issue any orders for a pandemic, and he couldn't remember uh, any recent cases of that in Colorado either. Now, Polis has so far shied away from some of the more sweeping emergency proclamations that other states have enacted, though, right? Right. So yesterday I went through and I looked at the proclamations of of a lot of states that have declared states of emergency uh, and analyzed what they've done. And a lot of what they've done is very sweeping, um, putting in um, anti-gouging rules, relaxing uh, nursing restrictions so that people can come from out of state uh, and help out medical professionals. What Polis has done is far more targeted. It looks like he's being very judicious with his powers so far. And this is interesting because the state law and the Constitution give him very broad powers during a state of emergency. Now, experts I said that talked to said that this was part of the balancing act. You know, you don't want to scare people. You don't want to enact powers that have social disruption that could hurt the economy if it's not needed. And so it looks like that's what he's trying to do so far. His health department, though, is is writing draft orders now that are Sweeping. So if the crisis becomes out of control tonight, he can sign those into law and gives him sweeping powers. So there's a lot to juggle here. There are no bans on public gatherings or large events where the virus could be spread yet, right? No, this is interesting because state of Washington has instituted a ban like that. Any event, social event that's 250 people or more. Colorado so far does not have a limit like that. The mayor of Denver, they canceled the St. Patrick's Day parade. Um, But to some degree, this seems to be taking care of itself. Uh, The NBA has suspended its season on its own. The high school basketball playoffs that are going on, they've banned fans. Uh, The NCAA NCAA tournament, which is kicking off March Madness. They've banned fans for that as well. Um, So in short, uh, I guess we'll find out uh, how far this goes. So obviously, even though there's not a state ban on those things, we're already seeing lots of cancellations. But he has the power. Polis has the power to do that should he see it necessary. Thanks so much for being here, Ben. Thank you. Ben Marcus is an investigative reporter with CPR News. Coronavirus stress looms as politicians and medical experts scramble to respond. But for teens, living with existential stress is nothing new. And frankly, many we've talked to hope that fears of new coronavirus doesn't overshadow an issue that they are more concerned about, climate change. In our series, Teens Under Stress, we talked with teens about the pressures they face. Many are worried about what their lives could look like if glaciers continue to melt, natural disasters escalate, or species go extinct. I asked four teens to share the first image that comes to mind when they hear the words climate change. Probably just like the classic image of like a polar bear, like standing on a little tiny piece of Arctic ice. (laughs) That's like the first like picture in my head. That's 17-year-old Aisha Kanu. She's a senior at Northfield High School in Denver. Olivia Munch, a junior from Fort Collins High School, imagines a general sense of loss. Yeah, I just think about an earth where like nothing's like as beautiful as it used to be. Everything's just kind of fading in a way. 
Andrew Lawley goes to Rocky Mountain High School, also in Fort Collins. He's 16 years old. His imagination takes him to the coast. I feel like the first thing that comes to mind for me is uh, the ocean, uh, especially with stuff like the coral reefs that are just like slowly dying out, bleaching, losing their color and beauty and things like that. Freshman Isabella King goes to East High School in Denver. She keeps going back to images of natural disaster. Probably since the Australia fires, I usually tend to think of like deforestation and fire, you know, just the planet burning. Those are some really stark images. Can you name the feelings that surround climate change for you? Probably, well, just sad, um, anxiety. Yeah, those are just like the main feelings I get. Yeah, I just feel like a lot of despair, like, just like hopeless because this, you know, it's so easy to save the planet and I don't know. <laughs> I'd agree with all that. <laughs> I don't know, almost like pessimistic. What makes you pessimistic? The fact that there's so much that needs to be done and so much that could be done and there's not enough people that are doing it and not enough people that care enough to do it. That sounds even like some frustration. That sounds like yeah. what you were talking about too, Olivia, where you feel yeah, like there's definitely. a lot that could be done yeah. that isn't being done. Totally. Yeah. What about for you, Isabella? Probably just anxiety and kind of dread that, you know, there's hopelessness too, that there is stuff that can be done, but we have such a short timeline and I feel like we're kind of running out of time to act. And what are some specific fears you guys have about the way climate change could affect your futures? I definitely think about, like, my future family and, like, my kids. I feel like lots of people think about that. Like, they say, like, 10 years, like, and the damages will be irreversible. I'm like, and we'll have climate refugees and stuff like that. I'm like, so what are my kids going to be doing in their future? Or am I even going to have kids? That's one of my main worries. I can just see it affecting everything in our daily life. Like, everything has a climate and environmental connection, and I can honestly just, I can't see a world where something would be better in the future. Just, like, a lot of hopelessness. And Is there something that you're worried you might not be able to do, or people that you know, or anything like that? I don't know. Like, outdoors is a really big part of it for me, and I'm kind of hoping to work in it, but it's going to be kind of hard to work for something that's going away and fading. So just trying to prevent that by working and helping it not be that way. Um, for me, probably the main thing that comes to mind is the number of people who are going to be displaced and the number of species of animals that are going to go extinct that just like can't come back. I think that those are really significant issues. Do you have concerns about things in your own life as well? Like what you might be able to do as a job or what choices you might have to make in the future? Yeah, similar to what Aisha said, I think what comes to mind is like, if I have children, it's kind of like an ethical issue of, is it okay to bring people into the world who are not going to be able to have a good future just because past generations have ruined the earth to such a huge degree? That's a heavy choice. Andrew, what about for you? I honestly feel like what scares me most about climate change, like my most pertinent fear is that I don't know what to fear. I don't know what it's going to bring and what impact that might have on my life, what impact that might have on the people around me. 
on the wonderful place that we live. It's the unknown is almost more terrifying than the known. That really resonates with me too, just that it's easier to deal with something where you know what the outcome is. It's hard to plan for an unknown outcome. Where are you guys getting information about climate change or where are you having conversations about climate change? Social media. <laughs> like which ones? Um, Instagram. I guess Instagram and Twitter would probably be the main ones for me, um, especially like teens our age. Like that's like we're basically like internationally texting with each other. Like you can talk to anyone. And I just feel like it really does like help like kind of ease my anxiety when I'm just talking to all these people and seeing all the work that so many people are doing. I think just with our peers and the people that are passionate about the same cause, like an opportunity like this is when we can like have more conversations. Mm-hmm. And Isabella, what about for you? Um, probably in terms of like information, the majority comes from social media for me too. Actually at my school, we did have like a short climate change unit, which was the first time I'd really learned about it in school, which is interesting. And I think that led to a lot of conversations within students in the school on their own. So that was good to see. And what kind of things do you talk about? Um, With my friends specifically, we talk a lot about um, what is causing it, I think. Like, there are a lot of laws being introduced that are either beneficial or detrimental that we talk about, and then also just what it's going to look like if we run out of time. Are you all involved in climate change activism? Olivia and Andrew, I know that you're helping organize a climate leadership summit in Fort Collins. Definitely. I think just spreading awareness that there's people and programs out there that can create like a world where it's not going to be what we said earlier, this gloomy place where it can be better and we can stop climate change and keep this earth the way it is. And just creating, just making people feel hopeful about the future instead of stressed and anxious about what will happen. And along the same lines, I'd like to add, like, even just getting the word out to people that this is a problem because there are plenty of ignorant people out there that don't realize that this is a crisis for a reason. Yeah, sometimes it seems like there are just so many ignorant people who don't really care about the issue. But um, as I've kind of started to get more involved in many groups and stuff... I've seen that there's so many people who care about it and so many different organizations that are trying to do something. And that's kind of how I found my way in this process, by talking to so many different people and organizations. Tell me a little bit about your activism journey. Well, it kind of started this past summer. I was just on social media watching all the sad videos. The the corals were being bleached and stuff, and I was just so sad. And it actually gave me anxiety and almost like borderline depression. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to do something about it. So I decided to volunteer with Greenpeace, attend some meetings and stuff. And then I got involved with the climate strikes and things like that. So that's kind of how I started. And Isabella, what about you? Um, So, yeah, in addition to like going to strikes and trying to stay involved in like politics, um, just like in my own life, I'm trying to reduce plastic consumption or usage and eat plant-based and then also just have conversations with people whenever it comes up. I think that that's really important too. So what I'm hearing, I think, from all of you is that being involved in activism or taking steps helps a lot with the stress you're feeling. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Like um, at the climate strikes, I had the opportunity to deliver a speech myself and I just 
it was just like a release. <laughs> I got to tell people what I was thinking and it kind of allowed me to like speak directly to politicians and I felt like I could just yell at them like, do something. <laughs> so yeah, that helped. I wonder, do you talk with the adults in your life about your feelings about climate change? I don't know. It feels like there's, I think some people feel like there's a generational gap between it. Definitely. Yeah. Because we're, we're all living in the environment at different times and we're going to be the ones directly affected by it. So I think just trying to bridge that gap and just break down any barriers or preventing a communication between adults and youth. Yeah, I agree. I kind of feel like there's a disconnect between generations because there's the older the, there's the older generation that kind of lived during this time where they didn't we weren't very conscious of how they were living and using plastics and stuff like that and now it's just like now we're just so motivated by um environmentalism being more um sustainable so i think it's a huge difference between the generations and how we've lived um my parents are pretty concerned, I think, about climate change, which is lucky because I have a lot of friends who their parents don't really care. Um, so I do have conversations with my parents a lot, I think, especially in relation to like politicians and what's happening right now in legislature. What do you think that adults most don't understand about the ways that you feel about climate change? I guess maybe more so for like adult like legislators, people in power who can make laws. I feel like for lots of them, it's economic and it's about money. And they think that a lot of the changes that we're pushing to make are going to be too expensive or it just won't be suitable for the corporations and the businesses that are um, causing lots of the climate issues. So I think that's where their main concern comes from. And we talked some about activism. What about the daily things that you do to reduce your stress on the planet? What are some of those? Oh, I try to bike to school and I get the chance and just knowing that even if it's a very tiny thing, just a little less, you know, pollution or a little more effort would help. Um, <laughs> I definitely try to do a lot of things. I know there's that whole like Visco girl thing with like yeah. the metal straws, save the turtles. <laughs> so I got a little metal straw. For someone who doesn't know, Visco is a photo editing app and it has a very distinct aesthetic. Lots of people showing off metal straws and water bottles. Yes. <laughs> um, I also try to use public transportation when possible. Also, eating plant-based, um, reducing plastic usage, and um, shopping secondhand, I think, is a really big thing, too. Yeah. I feel like most of what I do is um, more related to like, encouraging others to recycle correctly because I know how to do it. And yet I see so many people do it wrong all the time. And I know our school has a really big problem with that. So I have people recycle the right way. Otherwise, it's all getting diverted to the trash and there's no impact anyways. How often do you think about the future of the planet or about climate change? I think for me, it's on a daily basis because it's such a big priority in my life to, you know, aid towards that movement. Yeah, I think about it every day. I really think. I do. <laughs> I'm just that type of person to kind of overthink things. So it's something I take into account every day, um, especially as I'm like applying to college and like moving on to another step in life. I'm like, is this really going to matter? Like, 
in like 10 years and like what I'm doing now, will it matter? Because the world's gone to trash. Yeah. And like driving down here that we saw so much trash on the interstate and it's really sad to see that. But it's also if you think about it, you you know that there could be things done. So it kind of makes you want to like get empowered and make those actions to stop. But. Yeah. Even like today, I'm like thinking about like all of the decisions I'm making that might impact the environment. Like I used a plastic Starbucks cup today. And like every time I throw away plastic, I think about it every single time. And it's takes a toll on my mind all the time. <laughs> I know for me, that gives me a lot of guilt that I don't always do everything that I could. Do you feel that also? Is that kind of what you're describing? Yeah, definitely. There is kind of the pr- pressure to be like the perfect environmentalist. And obviously, it's you're not going to be perfect. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people have to understand. I think if we all try our best and we all try to be conscious of what we're doing, it'll have a big impact. What gives you hope for the future of the planet? I don't know. I feel like what gives me hope is the fact that there are still people out there that are doing things or people like us that are trying and making an effort to make a change. And that is extremely reassuring. Yeah, Yeah, even seeing little things that are being done to combat climate change. Like I know there's the organization Team Trees and they are working to plant more trees and even tiny steps like that are going to have such a huge impact. Yeah. Definitely seeing all the people that are that care about the issue and that are passionate about it really helps my state of mind, like Leonardo DiCaprio and like all of these influential people who are putting light on the issue. It really makes me feel better. Yeah, I agree. Um, even just like following activists and environmental organizations on social media, seeing the work that they're doing and really it's like impacts. Um, I think is helpful to stay hopeful. Students Aisha Kanu, Isabella King, Andrew Lawley, and Olivia Munch, they joined me to talk about the anxiety they feel about climate change and what they're trying to do to overcome it as part of CPR's Teens Under Stress series. When we come back, several adults were listening in. We get perspective about what they heard, can they relate, and we look towards solutions. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News is here to answer your questions about newly confirmed coronavirus cases in Colorado. With CPR, we promise you'll get the facts and not the hype. Go to CPR.org for the latest on what we know from the scientific and health communities and what you can do in your daily life. Get up-to-date information and sign up for The Lookout, our daily newsletter. That's all at CPR.org. Before the break, we heard from four teens about the existential stress about climate change that they deal with daily. But haven't young people always faced pressure? Some listeners have written in with questions like this one. Is this issue really news? Teen stress has certainly been around since I graduated high school in 1984. I appreciate that these teens are dealing with difficult issues, but haven't we always? We posted a call out on Facebook about the stresses other generations have felt. We heard from Bruce Gibson of Denver and asked him to join us. After listening to the teen's conversation, he shared the existential stress he faced growing up related to a totally different cause. The first memory that comes to mind is um, about 19, early 1960s, Stedman Elementary School here in Denver, in Park Hill. Before the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I do remember distinctly, in the fall of 1962, we had these duck and cover drills. 
And the gym teacher would just enter the classroom, again, second grade, and blow his whistle. And that was a signal to duck under your desk because this was during the height of the Cold War and uh, the nation was very tense. So I, it was something that was on our minds all the time. So you were really young. Do you remember the feeling? I was scared. I remember asking my mother questions that she really had trouble answering. Like what sort of questions? Um, Actually, it was the teachers back at school that I know I was a problem for because, um, again, I was kind of a precocious kid. And I said, now, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that this little Denver Public Schools desk is going to protect me from a hydrogen bomb? I don't think so. And they, I could, I could see the teachers were saying, well, now, what are we going to do with this kid? But it really concerned me, and because I had, you know, was reading the newspaper and things that a lot of kids were not doing. And that fear stayed with you past second grade, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, as I got older and was able to process a little bit more, There were other things that took precedence. For instance, Stedman in Park Hill was in the flux of a racial change. It had been a predominantly white school. And in the early 60s, it was changing rapidly to uh, African-American. So there was a lot of quiet tension going on. So there, there, there were tensions and concerns that drew our fear away from this nuclear threat. And I guess as the years progressed, and the nuclear threat kind of waned, it didn't go away, but those concerns, those worries, were deflected onto other things. And I was a worrier kid, too. I was not, you know, I didn't really play well with the other kids because they thought I was too serious, and this was some of the reasons. Now, it strikes me that the way that you talk about the stress you're feeling has some similarities to the way that Aisha and Olivia and Isabella and Andrew have shared. Some feedback that we've gotten on our reporting is teens have always faced stress and potential crisis. What do you make of that, Bruce? Oh, yeah. As I was sitting listening to them, I could hear some parallels um, about how we felt. Of course, we were, you know, again, I was younger than they are now. I think the thing that struck me most, though, has nothing to do with any of this, is that uh, at least a couple of them said, if I have children. And in 1962, or three, or four, it wasn't if, it was when. So that's what I noticed when the young people uh, were talking. Um, But I do hear the similar concerns, and I remember the first Earth Day in 1970, and it was all new and novel, and, you know, it was sort of a a fun thing, and nobody knew what recycling was. So we went through that stage, and now it just seems kind of natural to these young people as I listen to them. Here's what high school junior Olivia Munch had to say after hearing Gibson's story. It's just interesting to see the similarities between, like, the stress you were facing and, like, the stress we were facing and this, like, that danger to our future. You don't know what's going to happen and, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't know how to act in that situation and it's hard to do things without a ton of guidance. A couple more adults also listened to the students. Twyla Moon is a research scientist with the National Snow and Ice Data Center that's part of CU Boulder. 
She studies land ice, think glaciers and ice sheets. Nick Peterson is a counselor and CTE specialist with the Poudre School District Futures Lab. He's working with Munch and Andrew Lawley on putting together the Climate Leadership Summit. I asked them what stood out to them from the students' conversation. I really noticed when the students were talking earlier that there were a couple mentions of worry about getting to a point where things are too late or not doing things in time. And one of the things I wanted to bring up is that climate change somewhat uniquely fits into a category in which there's not an expiration date on our actions. So you can think of it as a infinitely long, slowly moving domino set. And we may be knocking over dominoes now. There are already glaciers that we've lost in the earth. There are already species of animals that we've lost, but there's not ever a time where it's too late for action. Uh, Keeping the global temperature down even one fraction of a degree uh, because we, we begin action now or we begin action at any point in the future is really valuable. So don't worry about running out of time. Just think about what actions you can do and what actions you can inspire in others and when you can start. What struck me was hearing how mindful the students are. Um, the story about every time I have a Starbucks and I throw it away, I think about the plastic in you know, every moment and every day. And I think youth sometimes get a bad rap of being self-absorbed or social media obsessed, but we really don't know what's going through their minds until we hear them express it just like that. And it's, it's really heartening because I know that's a feeling I and a lot of adults can relate to too. And I don't think youth get enough credit for how aware they are. And Twyla, as a scientist who studies ice, do you deal with this kind of existential pressure we've been talking about? Absolutely. I heard all of my emotions in the emotions that the students brought up earlier. Sadness, frustration, sometimes a, a sense of oh, what can be done, how can, how can we move this quickly enough. But the other thing that I heard from the students and that I've experienced myself is taking those feelings first, talking about them with the others, realizing we're in the same boat, we have this shared concern, we, we have these difficult feelings that we're on the same page, but making the transition from focusing on those emotions to focusing on places where we can take action and where we can have influence, where we can take an action personally, affect others, and an ability for that sense of action to really pull us out of what I often call the climate blues. And it's fantastic to see the students making that transition. It's certainly something that's played into my own life and my own ability to deal with those feelings of um, sadness and frustration. I really like naming that, the climate blues. Are you talking about the climate blues with other scientists? Yes. I've seen a big shift just over really the last year in how much this discussion is coming up. In the last year, there have been journal articles about how do environmental scientists and others who are studying these changes deal with these feelings. 
calls for us to talk to each other about it and talk about these emotions and how we can address them. It's being talked about at conferences. It's an important discussion. I'm really glad to see people bringing up these feelings and sharing them with each other and also finding collective ways forward so that we can transition from focusing on feelings of sadness towards inspiring ourselves and and feeling motivated by ways of action. And what gives you hope for the planet? I feel really positive about the speed of change. It can feel slow, but in fact, most Americans are concerned about climate change. The vast majority of Americans are very supportive of adopting renewable energy, something that's critical to uh, reducing climate change in the future. And I see now so many leaders, business owners, citizens becoming more concerned and feeling that sense of something needs to be done and I want to do something and I want to be active in it. And now I think we're really ramping up and providing people information about actions they can take and ways that they can have uh, important change in their sphere of influence. Humans are great at underestimating the amount of change that will happen in the future. It's something that we do across our lives. And in this way, I think that we sometimes can underestimate how quickly we can spread important changes around. Um, I definitely feel you when you say that humans can really underestimate like how fast change can happen. Um, I'm a really impatient person, so I'm kind of like, okay, pass the bills now, let's go. <laughs> we need things to happen fast. But um, like you said, like in the... 1970s, the first Earth Day, when people kind of first started to advocate for the Earth, it does take a long time. And I kind of think about those leaders and how long they had to fight for change. I think it's really important for me to keep that in mind, that it will be a long process, but I still have to keep hope. Um, During this session in the studio, um, I don't recall ever having felt guilty, as I feel right now with these young people in the room, that my generation handed them this. Um, The concern, all the fun of Earth Day and all that, that faded. And uh, we didn't, this was not a priority. Now we're in a climate crisis that they're addressing. But I feel badly that we did not address that. Now, as a black man, I actually caught a little flack for trying to emphasize environmental concerns because black people had many more concerns. And in general, there were many more concerns. I ran an HIV prevention program because I had lost so many friends in the 1980s. And you can only be concerned about so many things. And green things, especially for black folks, were not a priority. And now I see what has happened, and I do feel guilty about that. Um, I definitely feel, I understand what you mean when black people are saying, like, why are you worrying about the environment when we should be worrying about other things? And I do feel like um, this type of activism, environmental activism, has kind of lacked representation 
with of colored people, black people specifically, I kind of feel like sometimes I'm like, am I worrying about the wrong issue? Should I be worrying about mass incarceration right now because I'm black? Um, but right now, I feel like I've chosen what the what my biggest passions are, and yeah, thank you for saying that. <laughs> I gave her a thumbs up. <laughs> Yeah, that's a lot to juggle, and those are really heavy concerns. I don't know. I don't think, I don't blame the past generations as much because I feel like they didn't have the same sciences that we did. You know, we do now. Like, it's hard. It was hard to understand. You know, you can't, you couldn't really imagine <coughs> the effects of the climate, you know, that we're worrying about now. It's just, there's, you know, there's always been so many issues, and I don't think I really blame anyone, really. I think it's just. We're learning what the problems are, and we're doing our best to save it, and that's what matters. So, I don't know. I think I should just comment real quick on what Bruce was saying. Um, not only uh, about with like race uh, concerns being different, but every generation has its own set of concerns uh, that take precedent over pretty much everything. And our generation just so happens to be the one that is most impacted by this set of concerns and so I'm glad that we're taking action even if the generations before us uh, weren't able to. Well I was interested um, to hear from the students how they think about their future place influencing in this and if they find inspiration in thinking about the different kind of jobs and industries that they will be able to go into working in this. So as we heard from them earlier, I think they're already really aware that climate change is connected to all the different uh, elements of the earth system and human systems, health, economics. We'll be seeing transformations in all of those to address climate change. And I'm wondering what the students think of their future places and the new jobs and possibilities that might come up for them to make really big impacts in positions that don't even exist today. Well, we were kind of talking about this earlier. I was really interested in fashion. I kind of started getting interested in fashion in sixth grade, and then I started learning about the climate issue. So now I kind of want to connect those two. I kind of want to work with more finding more sustainability in fashion, and fast fashion is a major issue in today's world so I kind of want to make sustainable fashion more mainstream in, in the modern fashion industry. Yeah I think I originally wanted to go into architecture and it was a really big passion of mine but then as I saw the rising issues with our planet I just realized how like how much love I have for the earth so I think I'm just leaning more towards working outside in the environment and even if I do end up going into architecture or something I still want to bridge everything in some way to make everything more sustainable for the future. Yeah, and personally, I am interested in building instruments for a living, and uh, in that field, as with many other fields in which people build things, there is an extreme increase in the use of like reclaimed or reusable materials. Um, like if you go onto YouTube even and search it up, there's hundreds of videos of people making things out of like reclaimed barn wood or things like that and all of that I feel like no change is too small in that regard if you're making an effort and you make what you love to do a little more sustainable that will make a big change overall um 
I've kind of always been interested in nonprofit work and stuff like that. It just sounds like something I've always been interest been interested in doing. Um, but recently, seeing how many activists there are who like either starting nonprofits or just like doing activism on their own, I think that that's really um, a cool thing to know that I could do, you know, full time and have that much more of an impact. Students Isabella King, Andrew Lawley, Olivia Munch, and Aisha Kanu, along with high school counselor Nick Peterson, research scientist Twyla Moon, and Bruce Gibson, who dealt with the stress of duck and cover drills as a kid. They joined me to talk about the pressure they feel because of climate change. Find the rest of our series, Teens Under Stress, at CPR.org teens, and connect with us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. That's it for Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill, CPR News. Thank you.